Oh, good morning. Uh, if you're visiting, we're very glad to have you join us this morning. And uh, if you have a Bible, would you please join me in John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand high. We'd love to get one to you. This can be uh, considered a gift from us if you'd like, uh, something that you can take and give away to somebody else or leave on the seat when you're done, but we would love you to have the Word of God in your laps. Uh, hands high, please, if you're going to seek out a Bible. Um, while you're turning to John 5, two announcements. Number one, members, you, in case you missed the email I sent last night, the special meeting that was called for this evening is no longer happening. You can refer to that email for details. Number two, um, if you didn't know, we have the church garage sale going on to raise money for missions. And uh, through um, the sale of other people's junk or glorious goods, it depends on your perspective, uh, the, the uh, committee is happy to report that they ra raised $3,076. So that's, clap that up. That's awesome. And that's the actual amount. That's not Julie McDonald inflation. Oh, you are here. Hi, Julie. Well, if you're just joining us, we are in a series going through the Gospel of John. And it's called Following Jesus Together. And if you look in your Bible, and if you have one of those red-letter Bibles where our translators are uh, inking red where Jesus is speaking to help us see... This is the first major monologue or speech of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It is exceptionally theological, meaning it's revealing the triune nature of God. So if you're with us last week, we began to embark on it. We're taking a few weeks, this week and Lord willing next week, to unpack this tightly woven, lengthy, verse 16 all the way down to 47, response of Jesus and Jesus is responding to a situation. That situation is, he was in Jerusalem, he went to the pool of Bethesda, there was many people who wanted to get healed, there was an invalid man of about 38 years, and Jesus healed him. Well, that man received the joy of the Lord, and then those who apparently served the Lord, i.e. the religious leaders, wanted to kill Jesus for that. Openly and publicly seeking to kill G Jesus extinguished the light of the world. And so all that Jesus is saying is him teaching and preaching in response to both the miracle that he performed, breaking the man-made rules of the Sabbath, and the response of the leaders wanting to kill him. Well, without further ado, our focus this morning is going to be tightly woven on verses 21 to 30, builds on last week. The subtitle of the message this morning is Jesus has life in himself. I'm going to read our text, pray, and then we'll get to work in the Word. So if you would, look with me at verse 21, down to verse 30. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is God's word. Let's... Look to him together in prayer. 
Father, we pray this morning that as your, spun, as your Son speaks to us from your Word, that your Spirit would move among us to save those who don't know you and to sanctify those who do. That we would marvel at how marvelous you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess, Lord, that we are in desperate need of you for as strong or as independent or whatever we think of ourselves, we are nothing outside of and apart from you. And Jesus, we see here that you are the just judge. You are the one who gives life. So we ask that your spirit would give life in this place this morning. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Judgment, that's a bad word. Um, If there is a word that our world hates right now, it's that word judge, judgment. The one verse that we probably could discover that people know if we were to go out and take a poll on the street would be, judge not lest ye be judged, but not recognizing that that's Jesus saying that we must judge just righteously and not hypocritically. Right, Taking the plank out of your own eye so that you can take the speck out of your brother's. We live in a world that hates the word judgment because judgment implies right and wrong. And it implies that there is truth outside of us. Right, The world that we live in loves the word tolerance, which used to mean civil disagreement between two parties respecting each other's positions but disagreeing fervently semantically because words are getting changed in their meaning tolerance now means you must accept me without any qualification which is not what tolerance means although that's how it's used we live in a world that hates judgment but the word judgment glorifies jesus And judgment proves God true. Uh, Our text this morning, as we're continuing to listen to Jesus preach and teach on what it means for God to be God, some of the most um, deep passages of Scripture in Scripture and one of the most Trinitarian passages of Scripture, this is a tightly woven braid of verses that alternate between topics. You may have noticed the death and life, and judgment, and then and resurrection. These three ideas are interwoven because they're interrelated in this passage. And so the way we're approaching the text this morning is I'm going to uh, pull out one strand of the braid and we're going to look at it. Then we're going to put it back in and we're going to pull out another strand of the braid and look at it to then put it all back together at the end to see what Jesus is saying. So if you're taking notes, outline comes to us in three parts. Here they are, number one. Jesus has life in himself. That's verses 21, 25, and 26. Then point number two, Jesus will execute judgment. That's verses 22, 27, and 30. And then we will close our time with this. Jesus will resurrect you either to eternal life or eternal judgment. That's verses 23 and 24 and 29. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, look at verse 21. Point number one, Jesus has life in himself. Let's look at these three verses. For as the Father, Jesus says in verse 21, raises the dead... And gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
If you have been a Christian for any length of time, if you have spent any time reading the Bible, if you have gone to church, listened to sermons, the book of John is deceiving in a good way. What do I mean? John is deceptive in the simplicity of his writing and the sheer complexity and depth of what he is actually saying. That's what I mean. He's telling us the truth. He's not deceiving us. And he's speaking Jesus' words. He's recording what Jesus said. So, So if you've been a believer for any time, resurrection, death to life, a little bit on the judgment side, you hear these things. And so maybe in your private devotions, you're reading through John 5, and you think to yourself, oh, these words are simple and they're delicious. They taste good to read. And they, they, they seem to make sense on the surface of it. But then if you stop, pause, ponder, you see that there's an infinite depth to what Jesus is saying here as he's revealing both what it means that he, being God in the flesh, truly God and truly man, and his relationship with God the Father, what that means and what Jesus is teaching about what the Father has given him and more, these words are absolutely astounding. Astounding. We looked at verse 21 last week. Indeed, it was the title of last week's message, The Son Gives Life to Whom He Will. But now as Jesus continues, He's taking it a step further in verse 25 where He says... Even the dead will hear his voice and live. And to, um, to just indicate what he means here, when he's talking about the dead, he's going to distinguish between the dead and those in tombs. The Bible teaches about the living dead. Remember Ephesians 2? We are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. So we're the living or the walking dead, and then there's the dead dead who are, who are buried in their, their graves in the cemetery over at the school. Think about how shocking this is. And in fact, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to stand up, we're going to have a field trip, and we're going to go walk over to the cemetery, and then we're going to practice looking at all those graves and saying, get up! I, I'm being rhetorical, we're not going to do that. But let me ask you a question. How much effect will you have by talking to those um, corpses buried in the ground? None. Absolutely none. It's a silly idea to walk there and have all those hundreds, if not thousands of graves that are all around the campus and just to say, get up, get out, come forth. Nothing will happen. It's absurd because the dead stay dead except Jesus. Jesus' voice is so powerful that he kicks death in the teeth, breaking death, and brings forth the dead from death. Jesus alone gives eternal life. That is shocking to our ears. Jesus is claiming that his voice can bring back the dead. Now, we see that in the Gospels. But these guys want to kill Jesus for it. They want to kill Jesus for claiming these things. But what's more, as, as shocking as Jesus saying the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, and he's speaking of the living dead being born again, John chapter 3, what is even more shocking to me is what Jesus says in verse 26. Look at verse 26. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so also he, the Father, has granted the Son, Jesus, also to have life in himself. Now, last time we saw, without a doubt, that Jesus clearly revealed and taught there is only and ever will be one God. Not three gods, one God, but this one God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is saying that as the Father, verse 26, has life in himself, the Father has given to Jesus what? That Jesus would have life in himself. Who can claim this? Many have tried and failed. 
all have. No one can truly claim this. There's a guy in Australia claiming to be the return of Jesus Christ right now. I wasted time on YouTube watching a documentary on him. He is a new age self-help guru who is claiming to be able to remove people's sins and resurrect them from the grave. Guess what's going to happen to this guy? He is going to die. And he is not going to raise anybody for the grave, let alone himself. But Jesus will raise him and Jesus will judge him. But I get ahead of myself. All who have tried to claim to do such things for themselves are dead and will die. Every other species of religion, guru, self-help leader, major religions of this world, all of them are self-help projects of trying to teach you how you can attain on your own works, in your own ways, making yourself right with God or the force or whatever the deal is, whatever the higher power is, to make yourself right so that whatever the higher power is must accept you into whatever the good afterlife is. And it's all false. No one can claim this. No one can claim that the dead will hear his voice and live, let alone what Jesus says in verse 26, that the Father has given him life in himself. You see, Jesus can claim that. You know why? Because Jesus was crushed for our iniquities on the cross. He broke the teeth of death when he rose from the grave. Because Jesus finished the work the Father gave him to do, to save sinners like you and me. So what is Jesus saying here? What is, what is he doing? Well, as I've said, he's continuing his Trinitarian teaching. We are beholding both the oneness and threeness, threeness and oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that the Father raises the dead, and so also Jesus raises the dead. In fact, the Father raises the dead through Jesus. That's what the text is indicating. Jesus gives life to whom he will. That was last week. But here, verse 26, fix your eyes. As the Father has life in himself, so he, the Father, has granted the Son, Jesus, also to have life in himself. This is unbelievably staggering. This is one of those things where you, you read it, it's easy to read, the words are very simple, it's a low-grade reading level, and what he says has confounded the minds of the church for millennia. This is staggering. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father, but in this case Jesus, has life in himself? Put your theological seatbelts on again. Here we go. Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. Listen to this. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, and here it is, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So before Anything created was created. Before God flung anything into existence with his word, before the mountains were brought forth, God was everlasting. But our Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not you were God, not you will become God, but from all time, indeed before time existed, God is from everlasting to everlasting. What does this mean? This passage, Psalm 90, verse 2, John 5, and the whole Bible reveal that our triune God is eternal. What does that mean? When you confess and agree that from everlasting to everlasting you are God, this means that God 
did not come into being. You should just be unsettled in that reality for a little bit. God has always existed. There has never been a point when he was not. God will always exist because he has always existed and his being will never end. This means that within himself, God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, self-sufficient. Now, we live in a world that prides itself on self-sufficiency, and there is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-sufficient person. It doesn't exist. That is an illusion. All that you have and are has been given to you from God for His glory. There is no such thing. But with God, He is self-sufficient. That means there is no deficiency in God. There is no need within himself. He is not contingent. He does not require anything to give him anything for him to be because he is. There is no deficiency in God. He is fully and finally self-sufficient, which also means that God is self-existent. He is self-existent. He did not bring himself into being because he always was, is, always is, and will always be. He is self-existent within himself. For he is the everlasting God. There is an old, beautiful, theological Latin word that describes John 5, verse 26, and what it means that God is eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient. And the Latin word is aseity. It's a beautiful word, aseity. This means that God has life in and of himself. This is not ivory tower, halls of the seminary, making up theological stuff with nothing to do. This is John 5, 26. The Father has life in himself and has granted to the Son to have life within, in, within himself. It means that God has life in and of himself. He is ase, of himself. God is not created and God cannot be uncreated. He is perfect within himself because he is the perfection of being. God is ase. He has life in and of himself. And this God puts skin on and is talking to the religious leaders who want to kill him. Jonathan Edwards, not ours, the one who lived in the 1700s, although I think ours would agree, Jonathan Edwards reflected on aseity. Jonathan Edwards was thinking through John chapter 5 and all that Jesus says about that mutual relationship in the oneness and threeness of God. And this is what Jonathan Edwards said in the 1700s. Note this, because God is self-sufficient and God is self-existent, because God is ase, aseity, Jonathan Edwards said this, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself. And this is not mere uh, philosophical, theological speculation. When our New Testament refers to God as the blessed God, the word blessed, blessed means happy. Did you know that God is perfectly and infinitely happy within himself? That's important. Remember that. So Edwards continues, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself in perfectly beholding and infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own essence and perfections. 
God is perfectly beholding and infinitely loving and infinitely rejoicing in his own essence and perfections. And because God is three in one, rather than just solitary, a solitary God cannot be love, when we talked about this last week, because he would incurvitus se, more Latin. He'd curve in upon himself and be an eternal deistic narcissist. But God being triune and perfect is able to be other-oriented and love himself among himself as a triune God, one God in three persons. That's why God is infinitely happy. The Father beholds the perfections of himself in the face of the Son and the Spirit and all throughout the Trinity. So why is this important? John 5, 26. When it says that God has life in himself, it doesn't mean that God derives life from something else. All that lives, lives because God lives. He is the fountainhead and source of all existence. And because God is perfect, I say, God has in himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perfection of an eternally happy life of communion within himself. Do you remember last week? We've looked so long at that point. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. And that point shows that there's at least two members of the Trinity because the Father that loves the Son means they both need to exist at the same point. So one God and two persons, there are three persons. God is within himself perfectly happy, needs nothing, and because the Father loves the Son, you exist because God loves Jesus. That's why this is important. I told you that these words are very simple and infinitely deep when you begin to uh, dig into what is being said in relation to the rest of Scripture, interpreting Scripture. The life that God has in Himself is perfection of eternal happiness, the life of communion within Himself. That means that life is not mere existence. Life is happiness in the happiness of God. And when our text says, the Father has life in Himself, and the Son has also life in Himself. When verse 21 says the Son gives life to whom He will, He is not teaching that God is merely making people exist. Life is both duration and quality. And life in God is nothing less than the perfection of overflowing happiness in the beauty of the holiness of God. That's why we can say the greatest gift the gospel gives is God himself. Because a gospel without God is no gospel. It's not good news. And here is Jesus, having broken the man-made religious rules, added on to their Sabbath, and these guys want to kill him for it. You've got a healed, healed man leaping for joy, and he is loving Jesus, and these guys want to put a cap on the fountain of life. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. And yet the irony, the irony of this, in this very moment as Jesus is speaking this truth to them from John 5, how he has life in himself, I, it reminds me of Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3, do you remember what it says about Jesus? I just pause for a moment. We all got up this morning. Maybe you put on some nice clothes. You came into church to sing songs to Jesus, hear some long prayers, an even longer sermon, sing some more songs to Jesus. I wonder if this is the Jesus that you woke up this morning worshiping. Our tendency is to um, overemphasize the humanity of Jesus at the expense of the deity of Jesus, truly God and truly man. And here, this is one of those passages that shows the man Jesus, speaking of the infinite deity, as second person of the Trinity he possesses, he is rebuking these religious leaders, and Hebrews 1.3 says this of Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint 
of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And for Jesus to uphold the universe by the word of his power includes sustaining the existence of all that is. When we were driving to church this morning, I was talking to some of my kids in the car. I was looking at just the, the trees and the needles and the, and the bushes and the leaves and the flowers that were passing. And usually when we're, when we're driving to church, one of my children will read the, the text for the morning and then we'll, I'll ask a few questions and then we'll pray about it. We pray for you as we come here. And, and I was looking at these things and I, and I said to them, every single needle on those trees, every blade of grass, every petal on a flower, every leaf is upheld by the word of Jesus's power. That hasn't fallen. It hasn't rotten because Jesus wills it. And so here in verse 25, these guys are openly seeking to, not verse 25, this passage, are seeking to kill Jesus and their very existence, the molecules of their, in their very DNA that's holding their DNA together is being sustained and upheld by Jesus and they're seeking to kill him, the very one who keeps them existing. Verse 25, when it speaks of the dead hearing Christ, it's not just referring to those in the tombs, it's referring to all of us human beings outside of Christ, spiritually dead. So on the one hand, for Jesus to have life in himself, on the one hand means that whether you are a follower of Christ or not, whether you believe the good news of Jesus or not, every single thing that exists and lives, lives because Jesus wills it and he sustains it even those, even you right now, potentially living in rebellion to this gospel truth. That's the grace of God, the love of Christ to you for you to hear this and turn and believe in him. But even more so for those of us where John 3 has happened to us, we've been born again from the spirit from above. On the other hand, true life is not mere existence the true life that you receive the moment that you turn from your sins, turn to Jesus, believe that he lived, died, and rose for you, ascended into heaven for you, when you believed in Jesus and the Spirit entered you, that was the moment where the happiness of God in Christ entered your soul. Praise God. Now, it's worth pointing out in this moment that one of the... Uh, the difficult things of becoming a Christian, of being born again, to use John 3 language, is now we, we get to see all of our sin. And so there's a degree of difficulty that enters into our life because we see how far short of the glory of God we fall. But in seeing sin as we age in Christ is also about seeing the gospel of grace that has covers that sin that we sin. Because when Jesus hung on that cross, remember, he died for your Christian sins too. So I ask you, who is Jesus to you? I'm not asking in some postmodern truth is relative sense. Objectively, outside of you, there is a man who is also truly God. He is Ase. He has life in and of himself. Do you recognize that you owe your existence to him? Your mind, mitochondria is working in your cells. Your cells are dividing. Your synapses are firing. Your muscles are twitching. The fibers are contracting and loosening. All because in this moment, Jesus Christ upholds you by the word of his power. I hope that causes you to be a little afraid. To, to see the sheer godness of Christ and his power in holding us up. And at the very same moment, flying to his cross saying, Jesus, give me that life you have within yourself. But that leads to the second point. Jesus will execute judgment. He has life in himself. He has a say. But because he has life, he also is going to judge. Would you look at verse 22, please? Jesus says, 
The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is, Jesus is, the Son of Man. Verse 30, Jesus continues, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is not only the author of life, an instrument of life, the Father has also given all judgment to the Son. Jesus has all authority, Jesus has all the right, Jesus has all the wisdom, Jesus has all the might to execute judgment. Why? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 27, He, the Father, has given Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because... He, Jesus, is the Son of Man. And we looked at this a while ago, so it bears repetition. Son of Man was one of Jesus' chief titles of himself. What does that mean? And why is Jesus, being the Son of Man, so significant that the Father gives him authority to execute all judgment? Answer, Daniel 7. So if you would join me in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. In Daniel 7, um, Israel is in exile in Babylon. Daniel has a vision. And listen to this vision that Daniel has in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 9. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 13, And I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. By the way, this is one of the Old Testament rays of Trinitarian sunlight breaking through the Mosaic Covenant to see that God is one in three. In this case, we see the father having taken his throne and the son of man comes. Verse 14, and to him... The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that's what it means When Jesus says that he is the son of man, he is this one who comes with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is declaring to the religious leaders and all who would hear that this is who Jesus is, the son of man. Judgment. All judgment and authority to judge is given to Jesus. Again, judgment, the word that our culture hates, at least insofar as our culture is judged. Our, problem, our, our, our culture has no problem canceling others, which, by the way, is judgment. They just want a one-sided judgment. But Jesus possesses all judgment. What does this mean, that he has this authority from the Father? For Jesus, when he judges... That is, when he evaluates right and wrong, true and false. For Jesus to exercise judgment, it's not based on opinion or consensus. Let God be true and every man a liar, we read in Romans. You see, judgment of Christ is not opinion. It's not the majority vote. It's not consensus. It is not culturally conditioned. Jesus' judgment is cosmically conditioned. Meaning, 
Because Jesus is the author of life, he has life in himself, he is also the inventor of life, Jesus knows how life works best because he made it. More than that, life is designed, here's some more Latin, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo means before the face of God. We live open and naked before him who we will give an account. Scripture teaches that God knows our thoughts before we think them, our words before we say them. We don't even know our own motives, but he does. And on that last day of judgment, we live a life before the face of God. And God is remembering and recording, recording all about you. Jesus will judge, not subjectively, objectively. Not on your truth and his truth and her truth, but on the truth. Because there's no such thing as his truth and her truth. And that's postmodern nonsense. To deny that there's universal truth is a universal statement and shows it can't be true. Think about it. God's ways are not arbitrary or capricious. Because God is life in himself, say, aseity, that means that every command that God gives to us, every command that you be measured by is based on who he is in himself. What does that mean? God's not a killjoy. God's a give joy. Put simply, there is objective right and wrong, and God is the decided standard of right and wrong, and Jesus is that standard. So when God says, don't lie, or God says, speak the truth in love, or husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, or children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and on we could go. Those aren't arbitrary commands. Those flow from the very character of God himself, of which life is the ultimate happiness. So here's the thing about being judged against Jesus. If Jesus is the standard of the holy perfection of God, because he is the holy perfection of God, right? Remember Hebrews 1? Uh, he's the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of God's glory. Here's what this means about being judged against Jesus. Because you don't judge or measure yourself against others. Him, at least I'm better than her. Not as good as him, but if I'm middle of the pack, I'll be okay. You can tell yourself that, and you'll continue to deceive yourself of that. Jesus is the judge, because Jesus is the standard. But listen to this. All of us, every single human being, on that day of judgment, when measured against Jesus, will fail that test. Why? Because every human being falls short of the glory of God. We will all fail that test and be that gavel of cosmic justice will fall and say guilty except except for those found in Christ. There is a way of escape. The verdict of guilt either falls upon you or falls upon Christ in your place. That's called good news. You can't escape, tinker, or alter God's searching gaze and His judgment but no worries, he has himself become flesh in his son to come and save people like me and like you. Jesus lived the life you're supposed to live, but you wouldn't, couldn't, can't, won't. So that by the free grace of God, you can just say, Jesus, I am yours, save me, and we have a glad and happy Savior. It was God who invented the gospel from all time. It was God who's, because the Father loves the Son, has sent the Son on this mission to save us. It's God's desire to bring us into His Trinitarian love. And in doing so, that's an invitation of salvation. 
Every human being will fail the test. We will be found guilty except for those who know. Jesus, in my place, condemned, he stood. Dying in my place, taking God's right wrath and God's just judgment of me on himself, and then breaking the teeth of death, killing death in his own death and rising from the grave as a champion of all who would turn to him, repent of their sins, and believe in Jesus. Friends, that's called good news. And you need to hear if you've come in here this morning not knowing Christ. There is a way of escape because there is a God who is love and his name is Jesus. And you see his love most paramount on that cross. That's what his love looks like. And lest you wonder if God is unfair in his judgment, listen to Psalm 7, verses 11, 13. Psalm 7, this reads, God is a righteous judge. But here's where the fear comes in, a holy fear. It goes on to say in verse 11, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet, sharpen his sword. God has bent and readied his bow. God has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Do you see the, the, the horrible imagery there? God is a warrior for battle. His sword is sharp. He has lit his arrows. They are aflame, and he will fire them into his enemies. And yet this good God is the one who's provided a way for his enemies to become his adopted sons and daughters. Don't refuse him who is speaking to you even now from his word. The judgment of Christ on that last day will be undeniably fair and irrefutably true. No one will be able to say to him, what have you done? That's not fair. In fact, every verdict rendered by Christ will prove Jesus honest, faithful, and true, even in the damnation of of sinners. Those who refuse this gospel trust themselves rather than trusting Christ for that last day judgment, even when they are ushered into eternal hell, will know that God was right and God is fair. The difference is they will still hate him for it. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. And last point, moving through it quickly then, Jesus will resurrect you to either eternal life or eternal judgment. What, what do you do with this? The first, first point, aseity, Jesus has life in himself because the Father does. The second point, God is a just judge and Jesus will judge all beings. What do we do? Well, look at verses 23 24 and 29. We looked at these last week, but it says, well, I'm going to back up to 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We just looked at that. Verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. There's your answer. But is passed from death to life. And then down to verse 29. 28. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good... Note that, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Look at verse 29. Jesus says there's a day coming when out of the tombs will come those who will either, because of doing good, 
the resurrection of life, or who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you only stopped here and didn't go to chapter 6, you would mistakenly read this to teach that what you do determines whether God lets you into heaven. If you can get your good works to outweigh your bad, you can get into heaven. So let, let me help us here. This is a very important confusion that happens when reading the Bible. Look at John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. This is important to understand what you will be judged by. I've already told you it's Christ and what you've done with Jesus, namely his gospel. Did you believe it or reject it? John 6, 28. Then they said to Jesus, What must we do to be doing the works of God? How, how do you expect him to answer? Sell your goods, give them to the poor. Go into the mission field, live a hard life. Go whatever. We, we, we begin to build a checklist of what we evaluate as good works. Look at what Jesus says the work of God is. What must, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Verse 29, here it is. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Do you see what the work is? Jesus is making a play on words. It's not a work. It's belief. But here's the logic of the Bible. What you believe, and when you believe in Jesus and are born again, John chapter 3, then we are changed, we're made new, and then guess what? Good works do follow. The Bible says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So you may objectively look like you live a life that does more good than a Christian, but if you're not doing that by faith in Jesus, those are actually bad works, and you'll be judged for them. That's a big deal. So the work of God is that you believe him who he, who he has sent, and if you embrace the gospel, it leads to gospel-shaped living, and if you refuse the gospel, it leads to a life that ultimately reveals unchristlike living. And remember, Jesus is talking about resurrection, and it's based on works that begin with what you do with Jesus. Do you trust him as your savior by grace through faith, or do you trust in someone or something else? Every human being is created to live forever. Resurrection is the reunion, reunion of body and soul. And remember, here we see resurrection is the precursor to judgment Jesus spoke of in the previous section. Listen, would you please join me in Matthew 25? Remember what we've already heard about doing the works of God to believe in Jesus. Matthew 25, as you fit Scripture together, you see how these now relate. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory. Does that sound familiar to you? We just read it in Daniel 7. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom of prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or, and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it 
to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Verse 45, then Jesus will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Matthew 25, held against John 5, we see that Jesus is exhibiting lives that embrace the gospel and live a gospel-shaped life in regard to others, and a life that does not embrace the gospel and does not live a gospel-shaped life before others. One other text before we close, Revelation 20, verses 11 and 15. Revelation 20, then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Remember Daniel 7? Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, what we commonly call hell, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then hell, or death and Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where is your name written? There's a way to know it's who you trust. The main character of all that we've been speaking of, Jesus Christ. Those who fly from themselves and fly to Christ find their names written in the book of life. Friend, if you don't know Jesus and you walk out these doors... Know that if you refuse this message, your name is not written in the book of life. And your resurrected life will be a resurrected life of judgment, and you are in eternal peril. But right now, you can have joy unspeakable, but worthy of song, by turning to Jesus and trusting in Him, who is life in Himself, and that life is nothing less than the greatest pleasure, joy, awe, wonder, and worship in God Himself. Why? Because the Father loves the Son. You are here right now hearing these words if you don't know Christ so that God can speak to you from His Word and call you to Himself and be saved. Turn from your sins. Believe in this Jesus and not a fake Jesus. This Jesus of the Bible, second person of the Trinity, and be saved. And find that joy everlasting. And brothers and sisters, if you come in here with a heavy yoke and burden upon you, be reminded that this is the God who loves you. This is the God who saves you. 
This is the God who from eternity has prepared a kingdom for you to bring you into the intra-Trinitarian joy of love of God so that you have both now and to world without end life in measure of fullness of happiness in God. That's yours now. Amen? Lord, we are yours Save us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. But Father, we pray that this morning you would continue to satisfy our souls with Jesus by your spirit. That you would, wherever our hearts are unevangelized or dead or dark, you would bring light, life, and gospel joy. We look to you, Lord, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.